our hopes is every week when we begin to plan how these gatherings will unfold, knowing that we will open the word, we'll preach the word, we'll see the word in the ordinances, and our hope is that God, through his word, will either dispatch his spirit to regenerate your spiritually dead heart to spiritual life and wed your understanding with faith so that you are born again, Or that through the same word that he would sanctify you and grant you once again the internal assurance that you are safe in Jesus. And he would fill you with the hope that is made visible in the way that you live and suffer and serve others in Jesus' name in this life. One other thing, just kind of a way of introduction, I guess. One other thing that Timothy George says here about the Galatians that I also think is helpful, um, relevant. Makes the observation, the Galatians were not lacking in IQ, but in spiritual, spiritual discernment. And what he doesn't mean by that is some apologetic, just an observation, something to keep in mind and work on, but don't go worrying about it because it's not the end of the world, it's just the norm. If, if that, if, If he were saying that, he would not be reflecting the concern of the Apostle Paul in this letter because it seems that his concern is that the presence of IQ without spiritual spiritual discernment in the members of the Church of Galatia was causing him to fear that his readers professed faith in Jesus in vain and suffered for it for nothing. Brothers and sisters, I cannot think of another reality that sobers me up more when I look in the mirror at myself on bad days, like seven of them last week. (laughs) Or when I look at my kids and I hear them recite right words from the catechism or regurgitate to me what they know I want to hear. Or when I think deeply about the church and all that we rehearse together and talk through together and I know that You and I, as we part ways each week, some of us having very minimal contact with each other throughout the week and somehow thinking that's no big deal. Because life really isn't that hard and you've got this on your own without your brothers and sisters. When in reality, we are being stalked by a relentless enemy. A patient, prowling, stalking lion who, as I was reminded in passing last week by the title of an article that I didn't even have to read because the title said, Enough. Make no mistake. The enemy is out to devour. And let me translate what that means. It means the enemy is on your trail. Stalking you creeping through the tall grass of life, stress and trials, tracking your scent, waiting for the opportune moment to pounce. Not to play like a kitten, but to devour like a lion. In large part, meaning to separate the spiritual from the doctrinal in you. 
the experiential from the theological in you so that you enjoy all of this as a mental exercise. But you live as if this is ultimately irrelevant. So that what people hear from you when they talk to you about the Bible is impressive knowledge of an ancient book, but what they see in you is dichotomy. And when that happens, the enemy wins. Because nobody empty and lost and at the end of their rope wants dichotomy. They want something real. And Satan's goal is to expose you as a fake so that he can exploit the dichotomy that you are to the world so that he might keep you deceived by your knowledge and keep the world blind from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And how do people see the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God? Well, they see it in the word. They see it in the ordinances of the church, but they see it in you, God's image bearers, which was God's intent from the beginning of creation. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that in their dominion over the earth they reflect my image, And let them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth so that they bear my image to the ends of the earth. So that all the world would know me and worship me through the revelation of the word that I will give to them. And through the testimony of their lives that I will accomplish in them ultimately through the redemption of their souls and the restoration of the image of God in them that was lost in the fall. It has always been this way. So what Paul was confronting in the churches of Galatia and what he was addressing with them in this letter was not new to his day and it's not new to our day. So once again, let it be known. Our stated hope is that through these gatherings and in these gatherings, as you hear the word of the gospel, as it's opened and read and preached, and as you see it displayed in the ordinances, and as you hear the inspired meaning behind the ordinances, and as we converse about the word in our fellowship and in our community groups, and as we sing of it congregationally, and as we pray over it together, and then as we scatter from here and live in this world, our hope is that glorious, supernatural weddings would take place. The union of IQ and spiritual discernment for the salvation of souls. And the constant affirmation and assurance of that spiritual union for the growth of God's people in the likeness of Jesus and the bearing of his image and the preaching of his gospel to the ends of the earth. In other words, you and I as professing believers in Jesus, marked by the presence of the spirit, internally convinced and assured and externally joyful, faithful followers of Jesus what we hope Christ fellowship is and it's what we hope God is doing here so, so we've been we've been pressing that experiential button with the apostle Paul as he pressed it 
on the professing believers in the churches of Galatia because your reception of the Spirit, as he says here, and your experience of his power in sanctification is the evidence that you're real. It's the evidence that you've been justified. And what that means is there is no dichotomy. Not between spiritual and doctrinal, not between experiential and theological, not between justification and sanctification. This is where Paul is in his letter. But we've noted a few times that his presenting his life in that large section of chapter 1, verse 11 through chapter 2 and verse 10, and now his presenting their lives as evidence of his gospel, not theirs, was on a trajectory. It was going somewhere. Paul wasn't about to leave the evidence of experience stand on its own, ungrounded, without authoritative interpretation. This is why, when Scripture is our authority, that tells us what to believe, and it tells us how to live, and it even interprets our experiences, we need not fear that realm. And I'll admit that I'm preparing this sermon this past week and I'm finding myself having a very difficult time moving on from this because I fear that some of you are still either creeped out or turned off. That we would even dare breach this subjective experiential realm, even though that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Or... You remain unconvinced that you and your experience of the Spirit and your life in the power of the Spirit is living, breathing, subjective, complementary to the objective evidence of Scripture. Even though Paul is not only saying that very thing here, but he says it even clearer elsewhere. So if you're just enduring all of this ramble, about experience and waiting for me to get to the more important objective evidence of scripture grounded in scripture explain these words of Paul to the church at Corinth any other way than a more pointed way of saying there what he was saying here to the professing believers in the churches of Galatia here they are, this is 2 Corinthians Chapter 3 and verse 2. Beginning of verse 2. It's probably more than verse 2. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human And I'll leave that realm at that because Paul does proceed the direction we knew he would proceed with all of this uncomfortable, subjective talk about experience. He proceeds in our text to ground both his previous doctrinal assertions that he's made thus far and ground both his and his readers' experience of the Spirit as evidence of their justification by faith, he grounds it in the objective, authoritative evidence 
of Scripture. So we move on to objective evidence. The last two weeks we've been working through Paul's six questions in verses 1 through 6 regarding their experience as evidence. But we left question 6 for this week because it has a, it has a dual function. One direction, it appeals to the subjective evidence of experience, but it turns and reaches the other direction as well, and it brings forward the experiential realm and grounds it in the objective evidence of Scripture where it finds its meaning in Christ crucified. So if you look at question six, which is verse five, it's basically a repeat of question two, which was up in verse two. So let me explain what I mean by that. Up there, Paul asked them, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the implied answer, because the question is rhetorical, the implied answer was the, the, the one that he's leading them to give, even though in the moment they were living, denying that, which was the dichotomy. The implied answer was by hearing with faith. But now he asks the same question in verse 5, just from a different angle. And he adjusts the angle on purpose because by adjusting it, he grounds both questions from both angles in Scripture. So he's already asked them the conditions on which they received the Spirit, but now he asks the conditions on which God gave them the Spirit. It's the same question, just from a different angle. And I think he does it because the scripture plainly says the conditions upon which God gives the spirit. And the spinning of the angle and the grounding it in scripture not only cuts them off at the pass from even trying to explain their experience any other way than in a scripture grounded way. But here Paul is using scripture to interpret the experiences of his readers. And he's ultimately revealing the dichotomy. And by not playing the game of baseless assertions with his opponents there, he's telling them, your problem isn't with me. His opponents there has made the problem with him. And he's saying, your problem isn't with me, it's ultimately with God. Because you don't have the freedom in Christ to believe and to promote Doctrinal assertions not grounded in scripture and still claim allegiance to Jesus. Nor do you have the freedom in Jesus to interpret your life experiences outside of the authority of scripture and the cross upon which Christ was crucified. So he asks them. Does he who supplies the spirit to you. And works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Same question as verse 2, just from now the giver's perspective, not the recipient's. And the feel that I got when I arrived at this question in this text is that the, the whole mood, the whole tone, has just slowed down significantly at this point. Because now his readers are being forced to answer on God's behalf. So what's happened between verse 2, question 2, and 
Question 6, verse 5, is the difference between me asking you on the one hand, which reflects verse 2. So what's going on in your life? Which is a totally open-ended question with no boundaries that you get to answer on your own terms however you want. So you get to control that answer and spin it and color it, whatever color you'd like, and assign whatever interpretation and meaning you feel like assigning to get me to think about how life is for you, however you want me to think of it in the moment. And more than likely, the response that you're going to receive from me is, huh, cool, or that's exciting, or maybe that's weird. If I'm afraid to say that, I'll just say interesting. But if I ask you, tell me, what's, what is God doing in your life? That slows the moment down significantly because it is a different question altogether and whatever words come out of your mouth in response, you are speaking on behalf of God. And interpreting what he's doing in your life, which is a question you hopefully take a little more serious than the open-ended. So how's life? And this is exactly what Paul is doing to his readers here by asking the same question that he asked them from the perspective of their experience, this time in verse 5, from the perspective of the will of God. Which he has revealed in his word, which his readers professed to believe. He's challenging them to think deeply about God. Tell me what God has done in your life and what he's doing in your life. To go back to verses 1 and 2, set the image of Christ vividly before your eyes with the meaning of it that scripture assigns to it and reflect on what he's done in your life through Christ. Tell me about your experience of the Spirit's power in your life for your transformation and your daily assurance. Speak for God from his word. Interpret his work in your life from the revelation of his will in his word. I want you to hear yourself. Tell me what God has done in your life and what he's doing in your life in the basis upon which you think the way you think because you don't even see the dichotomy that you've become. And you're unaware of the danger that you're even in. This is his point in asking his questions the way he's asking them. So he asks them, did God supply the spirit to you and work miracles through the spirit among you by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And you know the answer that he expects of them. He expects the same answer as he expected in verse 2. By hearing with faith. But, because this is a letter rather than a recorded conversation, Paul gives them the answer that he wants from them and he grounds it in Scripture. In particular, Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And at this point in the complexity of this string of verses and these questions, I didn't did think it might be helpful 
to remind us not to lose sight of the fact that Paul is questioning their experience of the Spirit, not as an end in and of itself, but as the evidence of their justification by faith, which is the thesis to the letter that he's seeking now to prove. So he didn't come out here and just ask them plainly, how are you justified? By works of the law or by faith? He asked them about their experience of the Spirit instead as evidence of justification. But don't forget, he hasn't moved on from that conversation. He's still talking primarily about justification, which is why the text he takes his readers to grounds their experience of the Spirit in Abraham, even though the text he quotes from Genesis 15 says nothing about Abraham receiving the Spirit and everything about him being counted righteous by the hearing of faith. In other words, by the hearing of the Word and responding in a faith that justifies or is counted as righteousness. That's Paul's point here. The way he's chosen to engage the Galatians at this point is to begin to reestablish his main point that justification is by faith, by appealing to their experience of the Spirit as evidence of a justification that Scripture authoritatively declares over Abraham by the same hearing of faith that Paul is getting at here with his readers. So he could have just plainly asked them, how are you justified? But he's not definitively granting them that assurance here. Because that's not his job. Only scripture does that objectively and the spirit confirms it subjectively. So he appeals to the subjective, but he's working to ground it in the objective. And Abraham is the one that Paul again and again and again refers to because Scripture authoritatively declares that Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Just so there's no confusion here. When Paul says in regard to Abraham or in regard to the Galatians or in regard to us by application, Faith is counted as righteousness, or you are justified by faith. He is not saying that faith is a righteousness. In other words, it's your righteousness that God recognizes and declares you justified on the basis of it. Nor is he saying That faith is a work that makes you righteous before God. Rather, faith is itself a gift that is counted as righteousness because it unites believers to Jesus, who is their righteousness. And this is... I think such an important point here that it's, it just seems almost necessary to, to, to cite another text because Romans 4, because it includes a, a phrase that is implied in Galatians, but it's just absolutely crucial to the point that he's making in his letter to the churches of Galatia. And I, and I, want, you to, I want you to see it there. He asks in Romans 4, 
What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And then he quotes the same passage that he does in our text in Galatians 3. The scripture says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But he he goes a step further in Romans 4, and I think it's really helpful for our understanding of Galatians 3. He says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies who? Who does God justify? The ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. This is the point that Paul is making with his readers who who love to invoke Abraham as their example of a justification that's not only by faith, but also through obedience. And why are they doing this? Because the covenant was made with him, and the sign of circumcision was given to him. And God said back then, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from my people, because he has broken my covenant. And Abraham obeyed, they say, And the Galatians and Paul's opponents there were saying, that's just the nature of being the covenant people of God. It's always been that way. Believe and obey. And you'll be cut off from his people. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. It has actually never been that way. It's actually been quite the opposite because God justified Abraham by faith when Abraham was an ungodly Gentile. In Genesis chapter 15, long before the sign of circumcision was even given to him. And he obeyed because he believed. His sanctification was the inseparable result, fruit of his justification. And you distort justification by adding works of obedience as a condition to it because you make righteousness ethical instead of imputed. And justification earned rather than declared forensically on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. And and Paul is saying, Abraham whom you pull to your side and cite his multiple obediences is proof that God justifies the ungodly. Not by their attempts at being righteous or earning righteousness, but by faith in the promise of Christ prior to his coming and faith in the person and work of Christ in his coming. So righteousness is a gift declared over the ungodly by a faith that unites them to Jesus whose righteousness under the law is counted on their behalf imputed to the account of all who believe because he died for their unrighteousnesses and absorbed God's wrath against their unrighteousnesses and in his resurrection and before the throne of his father Jesus is and forever will be our righteousness So, we brought nothing to the table to earn our salvation. And we bring nothing to the table today to keep it 
And we will bring nothing to the table on the final day. Jesus was in his life our righteousness. He became sin for us who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And we are justified by a faith in the person and work of Jesus that unites us to him, so that before the throne of God on the final day, even though we bring no righteousness of our own to the table, because we are united to Jesus by faith, and through the supernatural work of the Spirit, we will be declared justified publicly, eternally. You confuse that. And you think you either contributed a righteousness of your own for justification. Whether by works of obedience or if you think that your faith itself is a righteousness that God somehow recognizes and counts as a righteousness on your behalf. Or if you confuse it on the other end of justification. And begin to think that faith makes you righteous so that suddenly in sanctification your works either complete your justification or keep you justified or make you sanctified. He's saying you don't understand justification and righteousness. It is declared, not earned. In union with Jesus, not inherent in you. It's forensic, not transformative or ethical. It's located in Jesus, and received as a gift by faith, not in you. Not earned by your works in justification or kept by your works in sanctification. That is how important question 6 and verses 5 and 6 are. It, It really is where he's been driving all along with his recollection of his own experience and then his pressing of their experience. It's the the beauty of Scripture in that it is propositional, but it's filled with lives and experiences that God then authoritatively interprets in his word, allowing us then to understand life. So Paul doesn't just say, although he does say propositionally, number one, justification is by faith. Number two, it is not by works. Number three, it is forensic. Number four, it is a gift. He says that, but he also says, look at Abraham's life. As it unfolds over ten plus chapters of inspired scripture. His father was a pagan, and so was he before God visited him and called him and joined him in covenant to himself and held out his promise of a son of his own seed who would also be the seed of Eve, who would crush the head of the serpent and bless the nations and usher in the age of the restoration of all things and the lifting of the curse. And God declared, this ungodly man justified, righteous, not on the basis of anything that he did, but by faith alone, inasmuch as it united him by the Spirit, through the Word, to the righteous one who was to come. Which then spilled over into a life of obedience that served not as grounds for his justification, as the Galatians now were mistakenly saying, but as evidence Evidence of the supernatural wedding of the theological 
and the experiential or the doctrinal and the spiritual. A justification that in fact sanctifies. No dichotomy. Which leads me to suggest that maybe in addition to our concern, our, our right, legitimate priority concern of getting the gospel right that causes us to ask each other, so what do you believe about such and such? Where are you at on this issue? And in addition to our concerns, our right concerns about the details of, of life, such as jobs and health and finances and plans and hopes and dreams that causes us to ask each other, so how's life? That maybe, rhetorically, I'm not suggesting necessary, maybe we should also press the question, what is, what's God doing in your life? We ask that because we are concerned about each other's souls. And we are concerned about dangerous dichotomies. And we are aware Every day of our lives, every moment of our lives in reference to our own, me, my own. But hopefully I'm aware in reference to you as well, and you are your own, and to me as well, that we are in fact targeted by the enemy. Based on our profession and faith in Jesus, we're not just targeted by him, but we're stalked by him. Patiently, quietly, stalking, lurking, <coughs> waiting for the opportune moment to pounce and to make this meaningless. This irrelevant and meaningless. Not necessarily in the sense that any of us would factually deny this because the enemy is smarter than that. But to make this, these gatherings, your time in the Word, your time with your community groups, nothing more than mental exercise that makes you more informed about the details of this ancient that ultimately means nothing in real life. So that your kids see the dichotomy in you and become the dichotomy themselves. So that your friends and your neighbors are impressed by your knowledge but repelled by your life. And so that the lost stay lost and the blind stay blind and the church stays ineffective and irrelevant. So 
I'm praying, as I said at the beginning, that supernatural weddings would take place this morning here and this week in your homes. The miraculous wedding of what you know and what your kids know and can recite with impressive precision. That that understanding would be wedded supernaturally with faith. The doctrinal and the spiritual, the theological and the supernatural. And I'm praying that the warning of dangerous dichotomy might serve its purpose and bring forth the fruit of repentance and Faith, if in fact you are a child of Abraham through faith in Jesus, but you've become a living dichotomy. And I hope that Christ Fellowship might be composed of biblically informed believers who are, in fact, spiritual. theologically-minded believers who live life in the power of the Holy Spirit, who push back against the prevailing notion that dichotomy is normal and nothing to worry about, so that you might show the world that the gospel saves to the uttermost, if they will but believe. note on which I will now pray, and I hope that you will join me. Let's pray. Father, once again, your word written long ago finds finds relevance in our lives today. Nothing's, nothing's changed. Lord. Nothing new is under the sun. Our enemy is the same. He's relentless. His head was crushed at the cross. His fate was sealed, but he remains on the prowl. You said it. First Peter 5. Give us faith to be strong. Give us strength to be faithful. Sober us. Not just sober us, but bring us to repentance, renewal of faith by the warning of the dangerous dichotomy of a divorce between theological and spiritual. Lord, for any here who are biblically informed but not born again, or who profess to be spiritual but it's not grounded in faith in Christ, crucified and risen from the dead, we have no other hope than that, according to your will, you might send your spirit to perform that supernatural wedding 
so that people are born again in our midst. And that for those of us who profess to be and know why from your word, may your spirit once again bring us to repentance over our hypocrisies, renew our faith in Christ as he's revealed in the word, grant us assurance that spills over externally into a joyful living hope that serves others sacrificially in the name of Jesus. Lord, may that be Christ fellowship. Only you can do it. It's our hope. It's our joyful prayer because we believe it's your will and your word. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.